Live from New York, I'm Julia Chasley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Boeing blamed. Congress says management failings led to 346 preventable deaths in max jet crashes. IPO Blizzard, Snowflake starts a bumper month for tech listings, and Instagram interrupted. The stars saying enough to hate and misinformation. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again, and as always, to First Move. Great to be with you. Lots of news and analysis coming up, as always, including an apparent calendar confusion on Wall Street. We've got a snowflake in September. Yes, I mean cloud software firm Snowflake beginning trading on the New York Stock Exchange today. The most expensive U.S. software listing ever, in fact. It priced at $120 a share. All the details and analysis on that valuation coming right up. It's one of a dozen IPOs in the United States this week alone. That's the most since 2014. Is it a sign of pent-up demand or a whiff of irrational exuberance, perhaps, too? You decide. We will discuss. Timing is key to It looks to be a positive start once again. Our early September swoon seemingly behind us, at least for now. Stocks aren't the economy, of course, and the challenges remain. Data this hour showing U.S. retail sales rising by a weaker than expected 0.6% last month. The July numbers were revised lower, too. It's a marked slowdown from the gains that we saw in May and June. They, of course, were reduced by financial aid, including the enhanced jobless benefits that have subsequently expired. Something I think that the Federal Reserve will no doubt note in their presser today That global stimulus, too, contributing to the OEC's raised outlook for global growth. It now sees a 2020 contraction of 4.5%. Sounds pretty lousy, but the numbers did look a lot worse just a few short months ago. Many emerging market nations, they say, will continue to struggle. Exporting nations, too. Just think of Japan. Japanese exports tumbling almost 15% year-on-year. Imports falling 20%. It's a worry for multinationals that, of course, sell to them lots for the new prime minister to consider, too. And he took over today. Let's get right to the drivers. I want to begin with Boeing. 346 unnecessary deaths. That's the damning assessment of U.S. House lawmakers on Boeing's efforts to conceal faults in its 737 MAX airliner. Their report blasted the plane maker for burying crucial information, resulting in two fatal crashes. Pete Montine has been poring over the details of this report. Pete, 18 months in the making. It's, it's still horrifying, galling to read, overlooking issues, concealing information from pilots that could have saved lives in their view. So many damning new details in this report, Julian. What's so interesting is that it doesn't really focus on the actions of the pilots leading up to those two 737 MAX disasters, but rather the years before at Boeing and the FAA. You mentioned more than 250 pages, which calls into question technical uh, assumptions made by Boeing, management miscalculations made by Boeing, and oversight gaps at the FAA. In this two things really came to light that are especially new in this instance. One, that a Boeing test pilot struggled for 10 seconds in a simulator 
with that MCAS system that's been the, at the heart of all of these investigations and that it ended with catastrophic results. Also, that Boeing engineers emailed each other talking about how they wanted to downplay the significance of the MCAS system, get it considered part of an existing system rather than an entirely new one. Salmia Stumo was 24 years old when she died in one of those crashes. I spoke to her father and he says this all shows that Boeing and the FAA failed. They're still hiding the ball like they did before and like they did between the crashes when they kept a plane in the air when they knew the thing was a killer plane. Between the Lion Air crash and the Ethiopian crash, that killed my daughter. Boeing continues to stand by the 737 MAX design. It says that one recertification flights end and the plane is okay to carry passengers once more. It will emerge as one of the most scrutinized aircraft in history. Meetings are taking place right now between regulators and Boeing in London. The FAA says that it stands by its numerous mandated design changes to the 737 MAX and that that is not good enough for the House Chair of the Transportation Committee, Peter DeFazio, he says that the entire FAA process needs to be revamped, Julia. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. Firstly, Pete, what are Boeing saying in light of this? Because to your point, there are fresh details. There's also many things that that Boeing have been addressing over this time. And these jets are expected to be recertified, perhaps even by the end of this year and back up in the skies. Does this change anything? Boeing says it's done thousands of hours of testing, thousands, uh, more than a thousand test flights of this airplane in simulators and in real life. It says that it's done everything it can to prove that the 737 MAX is safe to carry passengers once again. And it expects that this process will be done soon, although it says uh, the process is not being rushed along and the FAA says it will not be rushed along either. Pete Monteen, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Right, Snowflake begins trading on Wall Street Wednesday in one of the year's most hotly anticipated IPOs and the biggest in the U.S. so far. Shares priced above the target range at $120 a share, giving it a valuation of over $30 billion. Cold company name, hot stock, at least as far as valuation is concerned, Paul and Monica. I think before we get into some of the valuation concerns, let's call them that. Let's just talk about what Snowflake actually does, please. Yeah, definitely. This is a cloud software firm. They help large Fortune 500 companies analyze data within the cloud, store data, warehouse it. So it really is all about helping big firms just manage data, which is key, the lifeblood of this digital economy right now. And Snowflake has an interesting relationship and partnership with companies like Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud, and Microsoft Azure, but they're also competing with them. So it's going to be fascinating to see where Snowflake goes from here, especially now that they've got a big investment from another giant in the software industry, Salesforce and Mark Benioff. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? Because there are lots of clouds floating around now, whether it's the Amazons or the Googles. And the utility value of Snowflake is that you can analyze data using this company from all of these clouds. So even though they have their own competing products, this allows you to branch every single one of them. And it's a one stop shop. Paul. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, Oh, go on. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's the appeal of this company. And it's probably the reason why Salesforce invested in it. They're going to be getting a private placement of stock following the IPO. But interestingly, Julia, 
Berkshire Hathaway, which despite the fact that it's now a, the top investor in Apple, or one of the top investors in Apple, not known for being the most tech savvy of investors, especially not with unprofitable startups, Berkshire Hathaway is also getting a placement of shares as well. So it really just shows how even Warren Buffett has evolved and Berkshire Hathaway has evolved with his investing strategy in 2020. Oh, we're of two minds, Paul. One mind, two together, because it's exactly where I was going to go, which sort of tells the story and then leads us on to the fact that um, the valuation on this one is eye-watering. This is an eight-year-old company. It's now worth more than $30 billion. As you pointed out, it's loss-making. The net revenue retention rate is the highest, I believe, of any IPO. It's whopping. So customers are loyal and they keep spending more money. But really? Yeah, I mean, it is. And I, I know I've mentioned this uh, several times with you on the show before. And not to you know point out the rapidly uh, you know graying of my hair, I covered the tech bubble of 2000. I remember when all these dot-coms went public and then you know flamed spectacularly. I'm a little nervous about the valuations with a company like Snowflake because, again, it is not yet profitable. The losses that they posted in their past six months of this fiscal year was lower than the previous year. So they're heading in the right direction and revenues more than doubled, but they're still posting red ink. So that, I think, is got to be worrisome to investors when you look at the eye-popping valuation here. But hey, if, if it's good enough for Warren Buffett, Maybe, again, that is a key difference between now and 2000. I mean, granted, Buffett just invested in Amazon last year. He didn't invest in Amazon during the height of the dot-com bubble, but he's not waiting 20 years to invest in Snowflake. I find that telling. <laughs> Me too. Paul and Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A slow-moving hurricane is unleashing widespread flash flooding that could reach historic levels along parts of the U.S. Gulf Coast. Sally came ashore just before daybreak in Alabama. Ed Lavendera is in the port city of Mobile. He's uh, there for us now. And Ed, I've been watching you all morning. You were getting absolutely pummeled by rain earlier. Talk us through it and what you're expecting in the coming hours. More, I believe. Yes, Hurricane Sally has officially come on shore. Uh, we are in the town of Mobile, Alabama, which is just east or just west of uh, Florida. And this is a section of the Gulf Coast here in the United States uh, that is just being hammered by relentless rainfall and intense winds. The storm came ashore as a Category 2 hurricane, and it is a deceiving Category 2. And what makes this particular storm uh, very bad for this region is just how slow it is moving. Uh, if this were moving a, a little bit faster and coming ashore inland and then losing power and strength, that would be one thing. But this storm is just creeping across the, the land here. Uh, and that means that this region is gonna be uh, exposed to these, these dangerous winds and intense rainfall for much longer uh, than we would hope. Uh, and that is gonna be the story here throughout the day as the eye of this storm might be on shore already, but it is just creeping along, and that is making this situation very intense. And emergency officials are urging people to stay indoors, to remain patient. Uh, there is a great deal of concern, obviously, that people would want to get out now that the sun has, uh, has come up and, and it is day daylight, uh, and just to begin surveying the damage, but it is far too early to tell 
we do know that there is going to be extensive damage in many parts of this region. Um, and But we just don't have a full sense of all of that, the scale of this, because we really haven't been able to get out uh, and about to survey exactly just how extensive this is going to be. But the winds have been intense. Uh, we are close to just on the edge of the eye wall of this storm as it is coming inland. And it will remain like this for the next few hours. And hopefully soon we can get on the backside of this storm and have these conditions improve and weaken a little bit. Uh, and that'll make it a, a much better situation. But until then, it remains a very dangerous situation here on the Gulf Coast in Alabama and Southwest Florida. Julia? Thanks so much, Ed. Thanks for being there and uh, giving us that report. Get some cover, please, now and try and get warm. Ed Lavendera there in Alabama for us. All right, as the U.S. approaches 200,000 coronavirus deaths, President Trump again contra contradicting his administration's top health advisors. Here's how he responded to a question at an ABC News town hall in Philadelphia last night about why he hadn't supported a mask mandate. Now, uh, there is, by the way, a lot of people don't want to wear masks. There are a lot of people think the masks are not good. And there are a lot of people that, as an example, who you are have those people. I'll tell you who those people are. Waiters, they come over and they serve you and they have a mask. And I saw it the other day where they were serving me and they're playing with a mask. I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying what happens. They're playing with a mask. So the mask is over and they're touching it and, put, and then they're touching the plate. That can't be good. The White House says it's looking forward to working with Japan's new prime minister. Yoshihide Suga was sworn in earlier after a parliamentary vote. The 71-year-old leader replaces Shinzo Abe, who stepped down due to health issues. All right, still to come here on First Move, Apple's latest reveal. Two new watches, two new iPads, but its subscription bundle, the real game changer. What about the iPhone 12? Come on, guys. And Uber's Middle Eastern unit cream on COVID-proofing its cars and its business. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks remain on track for a higher open this Wednesday. Perfect investment weather, in fact, then for the blizzard of IPOs set to price on Wall Street this week, including Snowflake's debut today, as we were just discussing. Not the only news to follow, though. Some earnings results, too. Stay-at-home stock extraordinaire FedEx higher by some 7% pre-market after reporting a nice 13% revenue pop. Remember, they're hiring in significant size to 75,000 jobs, I believe, into the winter season and Christmas. Watch financial stocks today, though, as the Fed releases its latest policy statement and economic forecast, the last before the presidential election. The big banks still down significantly since the COVID lockdowns as low rates sap their earnings power. Wells Fargo, in fact, down by more than 50 percent. Let's talk all this through. Uh, Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, great to have you with us. I have to say there's an irony here in that the Fed did such a great job in stabilizing the system that they provided cover for Congress not to agree on doing more to support. And we're seeing the weakness filtering into the data now. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can expect three things from the Fed today and Fed Chief uh, Jerome Powell. You can expect maybe some questions and a little more detail on its low inflation target strategy just for how long it can keep interest rates so very low. We're going to get new near-term forecasts. Uh, Maybe they're a little more optimistic in the near term, but going out into 2023, what are they seeing about the healing in the labor market and the overall economy? And also, what is the need for more stimulus from Congress. We have heard Jerome Powell say again and again when he talks uh, to, to, uh, to investors and when he talks to Congress, he always says more needs to be done to make sure the recovery is secure. Will he go? How far will he go with that again today? Uh, I think he'll go pretty far, Christine. If I had to, uh, if I had to guess, whoever wins this presidential election, they have to pick up the baton and it's going to be in a weaker economy that they have to deal with if they can't sure. do more in the short term. Either side has to deal with that. But I do want to ask you, because the other thing, of course, that global economies have been dealing with is trade tariffs and the trade war, even before we had to, to deal with the, uh, the COVID crisis. The WTO coming out yesterday and saying that the president's tariffs breached global trading rules. The president gave a, a response you'd expect. He said they're completely inadequate. And I have to say, inadequate in handling Trump's uh, use of tariffs, but also inadequate, perhaps, too, in handling the underlying reason for doing them, which, of course, this administration said was technology theft. He has a point. Does he? Intellectual, years and years of rampant intellectual uh, property theft, among other things that the U.S. has complained about. And administrations uh, on both sides of the aisle, multiple administrations have, have complained about this. I will say, I think it's so interesting that the president, uh, to lose in front of the World Trade Organization, uh, something that the Chinese cheered, he'll wear that as a badge of honor. He is the kind of president who's elected to go against these big multinational, international uh, you know, watchdogs, and he's going to say uh, America did the right thing. I'm the only one who was tough enough to stand up to uh, to China and the WTO. I think that is very near term local politics. What is really important in this story for for the White House and that they'll be able to say, see, look, we took China. Uh, we took China on and uh, the world didn't like it. And that means it's good for America. Yeah, you're right. Never forget the proximity to a presidential election. 48 Christine days. <laughs> thank you for that. Christine Raymond. Thank you, as always. All right, let's move on. New watches, new iPads and a new bundle of services, but not a new iPhone just yet. Apple virtually presented its latest hardware lineup, as well as a subscription package that includes all of its services for the first time, including the new Fitness Plus. What I mentioned, though, and what we will have to wait a little longer for is its flagship product, the iPhone. Can't reiterate that enough, it seems. Dan Ives, Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities, joins us now. Dan, always great to have you on the show And as you called it, a virtual drum roll before we get to iPhone 12. When do we get it? Yeah, I think first week in October. And remember, Mm. this is, in my opinion, it's a once in a decade upgrade cycle. It's a super cycle for Apple going into 5G and iPhone 12. And that continues to be, along with services, which we saw yesterday in terms of the bundle, that's the one-two punch. That's why I believe this is a stock that continues to move higher despite some of the pullback the last few weeks. You know, what gives you that confidence, Dan? Because I know we've talked about this before, but you make the point that almost 40% of the, what, 950 million iPhone users around the world simply haven't upgraded in the last three and a half years. Is it simply because they were waiting for this 5G-ready phone or was it price too and that the phone that they had worked perfectly well? Why will this make all the difference? Yeah, it's a combination of factors. I think there's a lot waiting for 5G. 
Parvage, his battery technology has gotten better in terms of replacement. But, but, but that replacement cycle is elongated. And right now, they're going into almost a perfect storm of demand for Apple. And I think you combine that with more monetization in terms of wearables, AirPods. And look, AirPods alone, we think, is going to sell about 90 million units this year. With services, that's why the stock gets re-rated. That's why we believe, I mean, $2 trillion say We think a $3 trillion mark cap in the next two to three years also on the horizon. That's why I still think green light to own Apple and tech. Yeah, so you'd even still be buying at these levels. Yeah, I mean, to me, this continues to kind of be a golden time to be buying Apple because of the super cycle and because of what we're seeing in terms of overall demand. We're going to move on. Is it a fraud or isn't it? You know what I'm talking about. We're talking about Nicola. You said it's a massive opportunity, but it comes down to execution. What do you make of all the drama surrounding this stock, Dan? Look, I mean, it's obviously a controversial name. And, and of course, the GM partnership, you know, in terms of uh, for Nicola, that was significant. And, and, and I think right now it really comes down to it's a prove it from an execution perspective. And that's what really needs to come over the coming years. But it really is right now about the EV market. We're talking about a trillion dollar market the next decade. But, you know, when you have a stock that's got now an SEC investigation hanging over it, when there's debate with certain short sellers coming out and saying it's fraudulent, when the company itself has acknowledged that perhaps issues three years ago with a car that was being seen as driving but not under its own propulsion, and that was the video that we were just uh, we were just showing there. Is it one that you feel comfortable enough to recommend to clients, or do you just say, look, this is my price target, it's a show-me stock, we're not touching it right now? How do you handle that? That's a great question. Look, we're neutral rated, you know, on the name, and in our view, it's a prove-me story. But but I also look at the GM partnership and that validation significant. I mean, if GM, a stalwart of the of the U.S., does their due diligence and makes a move like an eleven percent stake, I think that speaks volume. So I continue to view it as it's an execution story moving forward for Trevor and the team. But this is going to continue to be a controversial name going forward. I I like your moderation on all of these things, which is why I'm going to push you again. So if an excitable client came to you and said, "Okay, I really like the story. I know it's controversial. I want to buy it. Would you say, "Okay, but I don't agree and I don't recommend it, but let them do it anyway? Or would you say, don't do it? Say if you want an EV story, there's a ticker called TSLA. Because I think for because for right now in the EV market, it's Tesla's world and everyone else is paying rent. And I think right now that's the proven EV play. And I think there's a lot more noise out there. Nikola could prove it. And they and they have on the hydrogen side as well as GM. But but it's a proven me. It's similar to what we've seen many others. But in terms of EV, you play Tesla. Yeah. Couldn't be clearer than that. Oracle, TikTok, you think this deal goes ahead? I think green light maybe tonight in terms of what we get from the White House. Look, once Chinese government got involved, poison pill in terms of the algorithm, an acquisition of Microsoft is off the table. So then fundamentally it came down to a partnership. I think it's ultimately a Goldilocks scenario for TikTok and for Oracle because it's wins for both. You know, the government obviously gets a a positive in terms of a big brother sort of making sure the data and there's no back end to Beijing. And the Chinese government basically stopped the sale here. So 
I think overall a positive ending to what's really a Rubik's Cube political situation. I mean, anything other than being shut down is a win if that's the uh, that's the alternative here. But Dan, to your point, does this deal, which is clearly very different from Microsoft buying TikTok and perhaps buying TikTok elsewhere in the world and being able to manage the cloud part of this business and the data part of this business, the Oracle deal is very different. Is U.S. consumers data safe under the Oracle deal in your mind? Yeah, I think it's yeah, I think it's safe and I think it's a happy medium. Because to get this shut down, 100 million consumers, as well as a Microsoft acquisition, basically almost a arranged marriage or for sale, was not ideal. So I think this kind of meets in the middle. And it's, an, it's a win for Oracle and Ellison, uh, especially as they go up against Microsoft and Amazon and other competitors in the Beltway. And obviously a, a balancing act, but I continue to think it gets over the goal line. Given right now, there's only one dance partner left. And it's Oracle in terms of a partnership. Yeah, not the time not to be dancing two months out from a presidential election. Dan Ives of Wedbush Securities. Thank you, as always. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The U.S. stock markets are up and running this Wednesday a day where a very special tech unicorn unicorn is prancing through Wall Street. Cloud software firm Snowflake will begin trading soon at the New York Stock Exchange, the biggest U.S. IPO so far this year. And we do have a higher open, as you can see, on Wall Street there as we brace for the Snowflake squall. You want a green day? When you're listing, certainly all this despite a weak read on U.S. retail sales rising a mere 0.6% in August, missing expectations. That's clear. And of course, a revision lower to the month of July, too. Now, Snowflake is not the only big IPO launch today. UK e-commerce firm The Hut Group looks like a hit, rising some 30% in London trading. Hut is the UK's biggest ever tech IPO. Hut is a hit, at least for now. Staying with tech and to the story of Kareem, a huge ride-sharing name in the Middle East. Now under the wings of Uber, it's refitted its fleet to protect riders and passengers as a result of the COVID pandemic. It's now adding deliveries and payments as part of what it calls a super app for the future. Kareem operates in more than 100 cities in 14 different countries. It's created more than 1 million job opportunities in the region. And I'm pleased to say, joining us now, Madassa Shekhar is the CEO of Kareem. And with us now, Madassa, fantastic to have you on the show. Wow, this has been a challenging time. I know it has. You've lost a third of your workforce, I believe. You've struggled with the business at times. You've had to make changes. Talk us through it and where you are today. Hi, Julia. Pleasure to be with you. Look, uh, it's, of course, been a, in a tough time for the business, but uh, we are in a much, much stronger place uh, than, frankly, we've ever been. Uh, the core business ride-hailing is, is much safer as a result of all the stuff that we had to do to protect our captains and customers. And the business is a lot more efficient. You know, as a result of some of the impact that we saw, we looked at literally every line item in our P&L and started focusing more on automation how do we do uh, acquisition more efficiently? How do we do uh, you know customer acquisition retention? Everything much, much more efficiently. So that's led to a lot of savings. And then as a result of COVID, some external factors also helped. So as, as you probably remember, 
a large part of our business was done on cash, given the lack of digital payment mm. options in the region. And as a result of the virus, a lot of that uh, cash started getting converted into digital payment methods, which started to make our business more efficient. And then lastly, this is something that's been one of the bigger shifts in the business, is uh, we were initially having uh, a fleet that was moving passengers, and then we had a separate fleet that was doing deliveries for us. And delivery was a small part of our business uh, as we went into the crisis. Now there has been a big, big focus on making our fleet multimodal. So the same fleet is now doing both passenger transport and deliveries at different times of the day, which increases utilization and all in all makes us a lot more safer and efficient in the core business, in addition to some of the things that you mentioned around the Super app. Yeah, and it gives the drivers the opportunity to be a passenger driver or to provide a delivery service. So it opens up options for them, too, which which makes sense to me. I just want to hone in on the ride hailing business for the moment, because I've seen in the past, you said there were moments during the, the crisis, the peak of the crisis, where business was down 80%. Can you give us a sense of what you're seeing in terms of customer demand as a proportion of where we were pre-COVID? Yeah, yeah. So, so business has, of course, uh, been recovering uh, across the board in almost all markets. And uh, we are gradually uh, trending our way back to pre-COVID levels. We're not there yet. But uh, the recovery has been stronger than expected. Uh, We had made an assumption that the business will not fully recover until the end of next year. But uh, the business is uh, showing a stronger recovery than those expectations. And and the delivery side of the business uh, has actually been uh, been growing uh, quite uh, healthily. And uh, that business is uh, already uh, quite a bit above uh, pre-COVID levels. And when you put the two together, we are starting to approach uh, pre-COVID levels. Yeah, pre-COVID overall. Do you think the ride hailing ever fully recovers, even with a vaccine? Do you think customer behaviour will change as a result of what we've been through? Of course, uh, some use cases uh, will will shift. uh, But but all in all, uh, we are quite confident that we're still in the very early stages of of this business. And the the addressable, the majority of the addressable market is still ahead of us. So just to give you a sense, even in ride hailing, or or let's not call it ride hailing, let's call it mobility of people, we expect that we are at, let's say, 2% of the trips that happen in our cities. And even if the addressable market from 100 shifts down to 80, we are still at two. And there's a lot of uh, innovation that still needs to happen uh, to make sure that we have a platform that can go after the use cases that we've not been able to go after at scale yet. You know, how, how many people use Kareem for school uh, trips? How many people use Kareem for, uh, for commute? How many people use Kareem for other things? So there are a lot of use cases that are still out there that we need to innovate and get them on, under the belt. And we believe that the business will uh, be, be bigger than what it was pre-COVID. Uh, but some use cases will, uh, will suffer. Yeah, but that's a fascinating point about market saturation and the, your view that there are other avenues that simply aren't using this as a as a tool, a utility tool to get around at this stage. Talk to me about the growth in delivery. Talk to me about the growth in payments that you're seeing. Can you give us some numbers here? So uh, I think delivery at a very, very high level is, uh, is, is, is 30, 40 percent above uh, pre-COVID levels uh, already. 
and wow. and and our delivery also expanded in scope. So before uh, uh, before COVID, we were primarily focused on food delivery, and that continues to be the bulk of the deliveries that we do. But since COVID, we have launched a few other things. Uh, first, we launched uh, a, an offering that we call Shops. So basically, any retail shop out in the offline world can list on the Kareem Super app and can start getting orders from customers. So it really helps them and helps customers in this time where there might still be lockdowns. The third thing that we did was uh, was around uh, a, a business-to-business version of deliveries, where businesses that want to now start serving their customers through their own channels but want stuff delivered are able to use Kareem to get things delivered to their customers. It's a B2B offering, and that's seen some growth. And finally, outside of all of this, if you need anything delivered, if you need anything moved from point A to point B, we have a service that we call Order Anything that will basically send you a delivery captain, and then you can use that delivery captain for literally anything that you might want done in the city. So the offering expanded, and as a result of the offering expanded, expansion and some of the factors that we were seeing, uh, the business has actually seen a very healthy growth. Yeah, and we've seen that shift the, to... Go on. Yeah. No, I've seen that shift. On the, on the <laughs> payment front, uh, carry on. Oh, on the payment front, uh, like I mentioned, uh, there were some uh, factors that led to an increasing adoption of digital payment options. So, uh, in some countries like Saudi, uh, all food delivery uh, was banned for cash payments. So, all of a sudden, all the transactions that were happening on cash. That was leading to relatively inefficient, uh, you know, uh, you know, cancellations and inefficient means of handling cash. Have all of a sudden moved to uh, to digital payments, and that's led to a rapid increase in the in the payment business as well. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. You know, you were bought by Uber um, in 2019. Do you think Kareem, if you were still independent, would have survived? What? we've been through? Do you think having the backing of Uber, the firepower of Uber, saved the company through this period? Yeah, it's a great, uh, it's a great question. Look, I think we, we would have been able to survive because uh, we were already quite efficient in the way that we grew the business and, and the way that we ran the business. So survival uh, would have not been an issue. Uh, it's our ability to play offense uh, that would have probably been a bit different. Uh, so as this crisis hit, yes, we had to play some defense to make sure that we protect ourselves and protect our captains, uh, first of all. But then uh, we were very, very quickly able to go on the offense and say, okay, this is where the market is going. The delivery businesses need to expand. This is a better opportunity than any other to launch the super app and get this digital transformation of the region into the next gear. And we have been able to make the investments required to take advantage of the crisis. And, and that uh, the extent that we, were, we, we have done this has definitely been helped by the support of Uber. Yeah. I have so many more questions, including your drivers and your workers. I mentioned the job creation and the challenges that presents too. So come back and speak to me soon, please, and we'll continue the conversation. Modesto Shaker there, the CEO of Kareem. Thank you, sir. All right, coming up on First Move, as a global fight against coronavirus continues, our next guest says there is a way to contain the pandemic and it doesn't require a vaccine. Stay with us. That's next.
Welcome back to First Move with a reminder of where we are in the battle against COVID-19. The number of diagnosed cases worldwide is now approaching 30 million. In India, more than 5 million people have been affected. The U.S. has had more than 6.6 million cases. And with scores of research groups in different countries racing to develop COVID vaccines, our next guest says the pandemic could be brought to a halt in just two to three months without a vaccine. Joining us now, William Hasseltine. He's chair and president of the global health think tank Access Health International. He's also a former Harvard Medical School professor. So fantastic to have you on the show. You have our attention. How? How do we bring this epidemic to a halt in just two to three months? The first question is, is it crazy or is it possible? (laughs) And the answer is, it's definitely possible because that's what the Chinese did. They didn't have a vaccine. They didn't have a drug. Yet they had an outbreak in Wuhan and Hubei, which is equivalent to our worst in New York. And they brought it to a halt in two and a half months and have continued to manage the epidemic. So it is definitely possible. Now, the rest of the world is not China. We don't have their organization, and we may not have their self-discipline. So what I've been looking for is what I call COVID control American style. That could translate to European style, different kinds of countries. And what does that entail? First thing, a very fundamental insight Uh, There's a a scientist at at MIT and Harvard Broad Institute, Mike Minna, who came up with a deep realization that being infected doesn't mean contagious. What we should focus on is finding those people who are contagious and isolating them from the rest of us. And that can be done relatively simply with an antigen test. That doesn't measure the RNA. It's not a complicated test. The way to think about it is as simple as a pregnancy test. You put a little bit of saliva on a piece of paper and you know the answer in 15 minutes. And it can be very inexpensive, no more than 50 cents and possibly less. And I can give you the reasons I think that. So what my proposal is, is I have everybody in the country test themselves at home once every three days. If you do that, you'll identify the people are contagious. The second step, is to make it possible for them to be isolated at home with their family. That means paying them to do that, to make up for lost wages, supplies, medical care that they might need. My guess is less than $500 a day, but that would do. And that would also provide an incentive for people to let the health authorities know that they're infected. Do that for 10 days. And I believe if we did that systematically, we could control this infection like they did in Wuhan and Hubei within two to three months. Okay, so there's a lot in there. I like the idea of people owning up because this is like a non-communicable disease right now where people are embarrassed or afraid to tell people and that limits the contact tracing. So one is this requires no contact tracing because people are finding it at home with a saliva-based test. It knocks that out. And there's incentive, to be honest, because you want to get the money to be able to finance staying at home here. Right. Do we have, because I'm just doing the maths quickly, I guess that equates to, what, 100 million tests a day if everyone in the country in the United States. States. 120 million tests a day. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Talk to me about the difference between the rapid antigen test and what we're using right now, which is the so-called PCR test, which, you know, some days, sometimes it takes 
a week more to get the results back and it's it's simply too late. Do we have right. enough antigen tests and is the technology there to be able to provide this? The technology is there. Ever since I published this story, I've been inundated with people from all over the world who have technologies that are being submitted to the FDA. They do exactly what I suggest. Yeah. And yeah. they are proven. There's one company that's already sold more than 70 million of these tests uh, globally. And that's just ramping up. It's very simple to manufacture them. You can essentially print them like you would a newspaper. Think of how many newspapers we print every day. It's not that difficult. And it's inexpensive to do. And they can be quite reliable. The thing about an antigen test, as opposed to a PCR test, is they're not as sensitive. And there are people who are infected who will be missed. But that doesn't mean we're going to miss those who are contagious. Because, as I said earlier, an important realization is that infection is an equivalent to contagion. You're contagious for a short period of time. And these antigen tests are best, work best during that period. If you're going to treat somebody, you want to follow their viral concentration for a long period of time. But if you're trying to contain the infection, you want to focus on those who are contagious. Mm. I think that's a deep conceptual uh, mistake we've made in the West. The Chinese did it very differently. They focused on people who were exposed because they couldn't tell whether they were infectious or not. So they controlled everybody, a whole city, whole airplanes, entire residential buildings. They just locked them all down. We can do better because we can identify now those who are contagious, a much smaller number. And as you pointed out very astutely, we don't need contact tracing to make this work. Yeah, I mean, the key, and we were talking about this with companies that had this technology back in April, quite frankly, but the, they were still envisaging taking the saliva and, and analysing in a machine so it was going to be more in the workplace rather than like a pregnancy test in the home, which would be key. The cost right. difference here between what you're suggesting and using a vaccine is vast as well. I have right. around 30 seconds, William. Do you think this is going to be a model that we use for the next pandemic and not this one? If you're I think it'll be for this one because the vaccine isn't going to do what we're hoping. Even at the best, we're going to have a year, two or three where we're going to have to control this pandemic using public health means, not just the vaccine. You know, a vaccine isn't going to solve our problems. At best, it looks like it'll be 50 percent effective, maybe less. And this is going to go on for a long time because we're not going to be able to get the vaccine to the people we need for at least another year. And we need to do something now to put this genie back in its bottle. And this is the key. Thank you, William. Great to have you on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for allowing me to talk about this. No, thank you. The president of Access Health International. All right, coming up, a star-studded boycott of Facebook. Kim Kardashian West joins other A-listers protesting against hate and disinformation. All the details next. Welcome back to First Move, a social blackout from social media queen Kim Kardashian West. Donia Sullivan joins us. Doni, don't panic. It's only a day and it's only Instagram and Facebook. Uh, In all seriousness, big stars here making a stand against Facebook and Instagram due to misinformation and hate. It's important, even if it is just a day. 
That's right, Dewey. Uh, Kim Kardashian, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Jennifer Lawrence, many others uh, joining uh, this uh, boycott today of Facebook for Facebook and, and Instagram uh, for one day to protest uh, Facebook's handling of, of hate on its platform and also to call on uh, Facebook to uh, stop allowing politicians to lie in political ads. Now, you know, the question, I guess, is is how big a difference will this really make people uh, like Kim Kardashian, um, you know, just going offline for a day? But I mean, I guess it does draw attention to the issue, given the fact that we are talking about it. Uh, This is uh, being um, sort of spearheaded by the organizers of the Facebook ad boycott, which happened back in July, where you saw major brands like Coca-Cola temporarily stopping ads on Facebook. Uh, Those organizers, including the Anti-Defamation League and the NAACP, which keep hitting Facebook very hard, uh, saying that they're not doing enough to to clear up its platform. And they're specifically mentioning, which I think is is a a very unfortunate example for Facebook, is in the aftermath of the the shooting in in Kenosha a few weeks ago, there was a Facebook event that was calling on people to take up arms uh, in Kenosha, and and Facebook didn't catch that, which was uh, really sort of uh, inexcusable for Facebook. Julia? Yeah, I was just trying to imagine how much earnings loss one day of not posting on uh, social media costs some of these stars. There was an estimate in 2017 that Kim Kardashian made $360 million a year due to social media posts. So a bit of inflation, over a million dollars a day. Interesting. Yeah, and I mean, cynics, uh, skeptics, people who are skeptical of this campaign would say, well, you know, they, they know they can only get the Hollywood stars to, to quit this for a day rather than for a prolonged period. Um, so, you know, there, there is probably some truth in that, just like a lot of, you know, people people rely on Facebook and Instagram, where you're, whether you're a star or a company, to, to reach people. Yeah, 100%. We'll see if it does anything at Facebook. Donny O'Sullivan, thank you so much for that. And that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.